Well, I want to say good morning to you. We are, as Quincy told you, in the midst of this sermon series on the book of Acts. This is a tall table. Either that or I've gotten shorter. But um, Pastor Jonathan is away this weekend on vacation with his family. We figure it's okay for him to do that every once in a while. And so he's asked me if I would to, uh, to teach this morning the second part of this six-week series on the book of Acts. And so if you have your books, you'll want to turn to the second section of that book where we're going to study the life of an amazing young man named Stephen. What a story this is. I wish we had hours upon hours to really unpack this because in the midst of the story is a 52-verse sermon that he gives, which would take us literally hours to really unpack because it's really, really powerful. We won't, of course, get to all that because we're in the midst of this year-long 30,000-feet series that just sort of gives us an overview of all the books of the Bible. And we're camping out for a few weeks in the book of Acts. We're going to camp out for a few weeks in the book of Romans because because these two books are so pivotal in the life of the beginning of the church and in our doctrine. So, the book of Acts, powerful, powerful book, written, of course, by Dr. Luke, who also, of course, wrote the gospel by his own name. But when you get to chapter 6, you have already discovered that the church now is growing immensely. Um, There's a lot of mathematic terms in the book of Acts. In fact, I came up with a new term this week. Axiomatics is what I call it. Because the first chapter you discover that these believers are all together. They're, they're, they're witnessing Jesus ascending to heaven. He leaves with them this charge in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which I'll read to you in just a few moments. But then in the second chapter, you find them in this upper room and there's 120 of them and then the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost happens, right? Well, and then after that, they add more to their numbers because this great message from Peter, and then 3,000 people are added to the church, all right? So you've got addition, and then you've got multiplication. Suddenly, the church is multiplying big time. Another 5,000 are added by the time you get to chapter 4. And so by the time you get to chapter 5, you're seeing all kinds of wonderful multiplication. The church is just exploding in growth. So you got addition, you got multiplication, but then in chapter 5, you get a little subtraction. Ananias and Sapphira. What a story that is. And you'll want to go back and read that when you get a chance because there, there was a little bit of a subtraction there from the church members because of, of their disobedience. And then you get to chapter 6 and you see another mathematical term and it's division. Uh, division never comes from the Holy Spirit. Division comes from mankind. We uh, tend to disagree with each other. And you're going to see for the first time in history the the first disagreement in the church of the Lord. So if you look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, let's just begin there. First, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. I'll get to that in just a moment, explain the differences. Uh, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, remember, if you look back through the first five chapters, the church has begun to take care of themselves. They are taking up daily collections to care for the poverty, for the poor. The reason is because many of the believers used to work in the temple, right? It employed hundreds upon hundreds of people. And so now that they're Christians, they've kind of had to go into hiding because of the persecution that's sure to follow. And they're, of course, the apostles are being thrown into jail and we're seeing all kinds of miracles happen as a result. But despite all the persecution that's already happening, the church now has grown to 20 to 25,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. 
So the growth is phenomenal, but with great growth leads, you know, great growth leads to more challenges. The more people, the more problems, the more opinions, the more preferences, right? And the more issues. And this is what happens in chapter 6. Verse 2, the 12, of course, those are the 12 apostles. Of course, they replaced Judas with Matthias. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to wait on tables. Now, that's not an arrogant statement. It's just the truth. They were risking their lives out in the temple every, every day uh, preaching the gospel. And they're spending all day every day doing this. And so they don't have time to deal with this issue. But there's 25,000 believers now who can help, right? So number, verse number three, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want you to note here that the apostles were not the only ones full of the spirit of God and full of wisdom. All right? This is available to all of us as followers of Christ. And God will grant you those things if you simply seek after him and pray for them. So each one of us has a gift. Each one of us can play a role in building up the kingdom of God. And we see this so vividly right here in the first three verses or first four verses of this chapter, how um, the diversity of the church allows for people to use their gifts. It reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verse 4, when Paul is reminding us that, that as the body has many parts and yet serves the same body, in the same way, verse 5 of chapter 12 in the book of Romans, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we all have different gifts. If it's for teaching or, or, or exhortation or giving or generosity or, or leading or, or showing mercy, whatever it might be, every one of us as members of the body of Christ has a particular gift that God has given us. We all have a role. And maybe your role is to stand up here and lead us in worship like AJ just did. Or maybe your role is to simply serve in the nursery because you have the gift of mercy. Whatever it might be, I want to remind you this morning that your role is crucial to the life of the church. Your role really does matter. And some roles are more uh, visible, just like you can see my hands. But some of the most important roles are the parts that you can't see. You can't see my heart beating right now, but if it wasn't, I'd be dead, right? So even though you can't see the works of all of our bodies, every function of our body really does matter. And that's what Paul is saying here, and this is the whole point of these first few verses in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. They are now utilizing the whole body to do the whole ministry of the church. So if the preaching of the word was the heart of the church, then the service and care for others was the hands and the feet of the church. So verse 5, this proposal to choose seven among them this proposal pleased the whole company. Now, this is unusual. Everybody in church is happy for once. <laughs> so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And they also chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Verse 6, and they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
So when you get to the first point of our little book here that we're filling in blanks on, here's the first thing you want to fill in. Stephen had a good reputation. A good reputation. And of course you see that in verse 3. Select from among you seven men of good reputation. And he was also full of the spirit and wisdom. You know, you can have smarts, but without wisdom, you won't make it far in life. He was also full of the spirit of God. And we're going to see that more vividly as we move throughout these notes. So the people were pleased to choose him along with the six others to serve. And what would they be doing? Well, they'd be waiting tables. They would be distributing the benevolence items uh, fairly among the widows, both Hellenistic and Hebraic, and the children alike, and all of those who were dealing with poverty. And it sort of brings up the question, would you be chosen for this group? Because of your gifts? Because of your spirit? And by the way, if you can't read my writing, because I can't even read my writing, it's up there in good old plain print. So <laughs> if you're not sure what I'm writing, just look up there at the uh, iMac screens. So would you be chosen for this group? You know, sometimes I ask myself that question, and I'm not really sure, given the right attitude, the giftings, and everything else. I hope I would be, but, you know... Sometimes I wonder about my own self. Second point, Stephen brought diversity to the church. That verse, Acts 6-3, the second part of it says, Choose from among you. And see, to this point, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been very unified. They're meeting in one accord, a big giant Honda vehicle. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just, that was cheesy. But they're all meeting together, right? And they're the Jews who have believed. And in chapter 6, we're introduced to Hellenist and Hebraic Jews. Now, these were two different factions that were meeting together. The Hellenistic Jews were the Grecian Jews. They spoke Greek. They read the Bible from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible. And they were probably from the dispersed Jews. In other words, when the captivity of Babylon, remember all that? That happened back in, and you read it all through in Nehemiah and Esther and Ezra and all those, and all those chapters in the Old Testament that we talked about at length over the last few months. When all of that ended, the Jewish people dispersed, all right? And because of that, now some of them are coming back to the homeland of Jerusalem. And it's those guys, the transplants, that are known as the Hebraic, or I mean, excuse me, the Hellenistic Jews, all right? The Hebraic Jews, those are kind of the good old boys. They've been there all along. They've been there for generation after generation. And so there's probably a little bit of an attitude thing happening between the ones who've always been there and the ones who've come back. And so this problem arrives uh, when they're feeling as though the Hellenistic Jews are not quite getting enough of what the dispersion, the daily dispersion is that as the, as the Hebraic Jews are. And so there's a little bit of an argument that comes up. So the solution is that they're going to choose seven men, but check this out. There's seven men from Greek origin. All the names of the seven men that were chosen are Greek. So in the humility and in the wisdom of the early church leaders, they chose leaders who were from the Greek minority to deal with an issue that dealt with the Greek widows. They were the ones feeling slighted. Now, I think this is a really great sign of unity and respect and diversity, but it's also good church politics, right? So Stephen was one of the Hellenists who expanded the reach of the church 
to represent the will of God. Now, we get to the third point. The work of God expands when many contribute. It's amazing what an organization or a team can accomplish when nobody cares who gets the credit, right? I mean, the heart of the disciples was to spread the gospel, to bring glory to Jesus and care for one another. So despite their occasional dispute, they were unified in their vision. Now, verse 7 of chapter 6 is a very key verse. And so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Even the priests are getting saved, y'all. There's something really powerful going on here. But that verse is a pivotal verse in the book of Acts because a few times in chapter 2, chapter 6, again in chapter 9, again in chapter 12, again in chapter 16, Luke will make a summary statement before something significant happens. And this is what happened. He's saying in this, basically closing this little part of the book of Acts, so the word of God began to spread. Now, it really marks the official turning point in the book of Acts and in the growth of the church. Because remember the words of Jesus, and I said I'd come back to this, and here it is. Chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus gives the charge of the church and basically the summary statement for the entire book of Acts. What did chapter 1, verse 8 says? Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, three events are about to take place that will begin the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. Of the earth. The first one is this moment that we're reading about right now, the first martyr, Stephen. The second one you'll hear about next week when Philip begins to spread the gospel to Gaza and Caesarea. And the third, and you'll hear him in in this story right here as well, when Saul of Tarsus gets radically saved, becomes Paul the apostle, and God uses him to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the catalyst moment where we're about to see where all that begins. So Stephen and the others contributed to the spread of the gospel. And when we're willing to be used, God will do a great work. When we are willing to be used, God will do a great work. In us and through us. So the greatness of the work is dependent on our obedience. And I might add to that our availability. Listen to the words of D.L. Moody. He said, there are many of us who are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do the little things. What I love about Stephen and Philip and the rest of these guys is their complete willingness in the midst of being full of spirit and wisdom, right? These are highly qualified individuals, and yet their job is to simply wait tables. I mean, the humility of that is beautiful. And verse... 8 from chapter 6 now says, now Stephen, full of grace and power. Well, we just read that he was a good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, and now the Bible says he's full of grace and power. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Oh, so he's not just waiting tables, is he? No, he's out there ministering to the people, and God is using him to actually perform miracles in their midst. Full of grace and power. What a great phrase that is. Let me ask you this. Do people say that about your life? 
Oh, yeah, there's John. And boy, he's full of grace. He's also full of power. Do they say that about you? I mean, folks, we need doctors. We need lawyers. We need car salespeople. We need nurses. We need insurance people. We need athletes, musicians, and pastors, and students, and baristas at Starbucks, for crying out loud, nursery workers, construction workers. We need, we need Walmart greeters who are full of grace and power. It's one thing to carry out your job. It's quite another for you to see your job as a mission field and to jump out of bed each and every morning with great anticipation for what God will do in and through you at this day in your workplace and in your home. It's such a difference, right? And that was the spirit of Stephen. He wasn't just waiting tables. He was full of grace and power. And he did so with passion and with fervency. Reminds me of the story of Christopher Wren. In 1666, of course, the Great Fire of London took place. And Christopher Wren, that great architect in London, the famous architect, was commissioned to rebuild the St. Paul's Cathedral, that glorious, amazing cathedral there at the, in the heart of downtown London. And so one day in the midst of this rebuilding, 1671, he's walking across the, the, uh, the property there, and he sees three bricklayers on a scaffold, and he asks them what they're doing. And the first bricklayer says, well, I'm a bricklayer. I'm laying bricks and working hard to feed my family. And the second one says, well, I'm a builder, and I'm building a wall. The third bricklayer said, I'm a cathedral builder, and I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. See, the first bricklayer had a job. The second bricklayer, he had a, a career. But the third bricklayer, he considered what he did a calling. We all have a role in the church. What is yours? Are you fulfilling it? Do you see your job like this? Whatever it is that you do, maybe God has placed in your, uh, a neighborhood that's all around you or, or a job situation, and do you see that he could possibly have placed you there for a reason? Have you ever considered that it's actually your mission field, whatever it is that you're doing? See, Stephen was passionate about this. He's full of wisdom and grace and power, and he's respected because of his willingness to stand boldly for the truth, right? And he knew this would lead to imprisonment and certainly some sort of torture because he's watching the lives of Peter and John and what had just happened in the prior chapter. He, he knows all this stuff is happening, and, they, and, and it's greatly disturbing to the Jewish people of what this growth of the church is, is, is doing, right? But in the same sense, Stephen cannot help but speak the truth. It wasn't a popular decision among his, his, uh, his Jewish peers, certainly among the religious crowd or the common folks. But like Dr. Falwell said, and you have it here in your book, God never called us to be popular, but he's called us to be faithful. I used to love to watch Dr. Falwell on all these TV shows. He was so hated by so many liberals, <laughs> but so loved by anybody who knew him, right? And what I loved is that he never failed to share the gospel at every given opportunity. Even if he was on the TV show for 90 seconds, somehow, some way, he worked the gospel in. It was amazing to me. Oh, but folks, as you see here in just a moment, where there's light, the bugs will soon arrive. All right? So, verse 9. You don't see it here in your book, but this is a, 
a very key verse in this phrase. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue. Now, what is that? Well, the synagogues were formed during the 400 years of silence. Actually, began to be formed in the time of Babylonian captivity because, you see, there was no temple in Babylon to meet. And so they began to meet in groups of 10 or more in houses or wherever they could. And eventually, those little meeting places became known as synagogues. Well, by the time you get to this point in the life of Stephen, right after the death of Christ, you would discover that, according to the Jewish Talmud, 390 synagogues exist in the city of Jerusalem. One of them is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, or the Synagogue of the Freed Slaves. It's made up of former slaves, but it's also composed of people from Cyrenia, the Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And it's this group that begins to argue with Stephen. Now, this is key because the group of Cilicia would have included a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus because the town of Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia. And so while he's there training to become the Pharisee that he was to become, he would have been in this synagogue, attending this synagogue, and has probably risen as one of the young leaders, as you will see in this chapter. And so it's Paul or Saul at that point and the rest of these people who begin to argue with Stephen. But here's a very, very key verse. Look at verse 10 in Acts chapter 6. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Verse 11. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up all the people, the elders and the scribes. And so they came and they seized them and they take him to the Sanhedrin. All right, now there's a gate in Jerusalem right now. It's called Stephen's Gate or Lion's Gate. It was there at this place, just outside, just inside the walls of the city where they took him to the Sanhedrin. And in just a moment, we'll be dragging him out through that gate. And when you go to Jerusalem, if you're going in February, uh, Pastor Jonathan will show you exactly where that gate is. Now, they take him before the Sanhedrin. Obviously, this is not the same group of priests who are, been, who are getting saved in verse 7, right? These, these guys are not believers. They are, they are traditional Jewish believers, and they do not accept the teachings of Christ, and they certainly don't see him as the Messiah. So Stephen's sensitivity to the Spirit was what made all the difference in his impact. All right? So let me go back because I think I missed one little place where you're, we're, uh, we're filling in the blanks here. Stephen stood strong regardless of the opposition. You can put that in your blank there on number four. And then later on there down there it says Stephen's sensitivity to the spirit is what made all the difference. All right. That's what made all the impact. It's a powerful moment and a powerful testimony to see how the Spirit of God begins to use him in this moment. And they begin to trump up false charges against him, right? But then Stephen knows how to deal with the conflict. Number five. Well, I just had a dyslexic moment there. He knows how to deal with the conflict. Acts 6.15. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now this is really interesting because anybody, especially the Sanhedrin, who would have seen this, they would have had memories of all that they read from the Torah. When the Bible says that Moses, when he had spent time with the Lord, his face shone like the, like the face of an angel. And here now they're witnessing Stephen in the same way. 
Isn't that interesting? Because we're going to get to what Stephen had to say about Moses in just a moment. But the natural human reaction to lies being told about us is to seek revenge. Right? We all want to get revenge when somebody is telling lies about us. And I don't know how you are, but when somebody's accusing me of something I didn't do, that drives me crazy. It really does. So we desire revenge in the face of the attacks, but Stephen's spirit-led response is a great example to all of us. He just speaks the truth. And now he's going to have an opportunity because the verse 7, the first verse of chapter 7, the high priest says these words, are these things true? What things? The things that they're accusing him of saying. Are these things true? And that opens the door wide open now for Stephen to bring the longest sermon in the book of Acts, 52 verses. And he proceeds to explain to them that throughout the history of the Jewish people, they have rejected their prophets and their leaders. And now they're accusing him of blasphemy, blasphemy over the Mosaic law, blasphemy over Moses, blasphemy over their Jewish traditions. And certainly blasphemy over claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And in an incredible, wise, and spirit-filled way, Stephen now, for the next 52 verses, just goes through the entire history of the Jewish people and, and explains painstakingly, really very, very, very vividly, how over the course of the history, they've completely rejected every leader that God's placed before them. And so he goes through Joseph and he mentions Joshua and then of course he goes to great length and talks about Moses and, and then he even gets to David and to Solomon and then he starts to talk about uh, quotes from Isaiah and he even quotes Amos and I mean it's amazing how well Stephen knows his Bible and the history of his own people. And up to this point everybody would have probably been in agreement with him through those first 52 verses because it's all the the history, but then at the end he begins to tell them, but you don't understand, you're the ones who rejected all these guys. And then he tries to explain to them that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that. And that's when they really get upset because the very nature, folks, of the gospel is offensive. So his sermon in Acts chapter 7 shows his willingness to stand on truth in the face of lies, to stand on truth in the face of lies. You see, folks, the very nature of the gospel is offensive. You cannot expose someone living in sin to their sin and expect them to thank you for it, right? Only the breaking power of the Holy Spirit can do that. But it's a painful experience to be confronted about your own sin. We don't like that as individuals. And when we are confronted, uh, it's offensive to us, right? And when the whole mob confronts you, boy, that's really interesting. So you got the entire mob now confronting Stephen about the truth that he's given him. But the mob responds in a typical sort of mob way. When he gives them the truth, they respond like we see even mobs respond in this day and age. Here's the mindset of the mob. We must permanently remove any and all confrontations that might make us uncomfortable or that might sting our souls a bit, and that doesn't fit our own agenda. So no matter how radical or how immoral our agenda might be, we must rid of this problem, right? 
So in order to do this, we got to make sure that the greater society believes that this perceived threat to the mob is both radical and dangerous, and therefore it has to be silenced or canceled out by any means necessary for the greater good of our current cultural beliefs. And so if it means whipping up lies about this person or even getting rid of them, then so be it. But all the while, the mob is totally blinded to the fact that what, we are, what they're doing to silence their opposition is the very thing that they themselves preach against, closed-minded intolerance. So in the mob's mind, tolerance and freedom only goes one way, the mob's way. But this mindset, folks, when it comes to ignoring real truth, is the equivalent of having a life-threatening tumor in your body and, and refusing to allow the doctor to cut it out simply because the surgery might make you uncomfortable. Well, yes, it's going to make you uncomfortable, but better to deal with a little bit of pain and discomfort than to have a tumor destroy you from within, right? And so it is with the truth of the gospel. We don't want to be told we're lost or sinful or prideful, but it's the truth. And that sin is the equivalent of a tumor inside of us. It's killing us. So we must allow the Holy Spirit to do His work and to take that tumor out of us or that sin out of us. And this is the message that Stephen was preaching to this mob. But it's offensive for them to hear about their own sin. And Stephen was right to confront them, but he paid for it with his life. And by the way, that's still happening today. Do you know that between 2005 and 2017, in this world, over a million people gave their lives for the cause of Christ? Over a million people were killed simply because they proclaimed Christ as Lord. And do you know that even though it's slowed down a little bit because we've ridded the world of radical Islam like uh, ISIS and some of the others, thanks be to God that uh, we've been able to defeat that evil power, at least temporarily, but even now, in this day, this year, on average, eight people in this world will die as a result of their proclaiming Christ as Lord every day. Eight people every day. I don't know about you. I don't know if you have that kind of boldness. I don't know if you were, if you were standing here and somebody put a gun to your forehead and said, would you proclaim Christ as Lord? Would you say yes or no? I, I don't know. I hope you would. Hmm. But folks, the mob is very much alive. They hate the gospel and anyone who proclaims it. That's why if we take the calling of Christ seriously, you're not just going to please everybody. In fact, it may cost you. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the call of Christ is that he bids a man come and die. The call of Christ is not an easy one. But there comes a point in all of our lives when we must decide, what am I willing to die for? Thankfully, God, throughout history, continues to raise up Stevens in this world, to confront the world and present the world with truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus, because the truth must be told. So Stephen goes throughout their history, and I told you how they rejected all the teachings and all the prophets that God had given, given to them. And when they heard these things, verse 54 of chapter 7 says, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, then gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he stood and, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Folks, this is the only place in Scripture where you'll see that. The only place. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. People ask, what, what do you think he was standing for? I don't know, but everywhere else it says he's seated at the right hand of God. All I can think is, okay, this is the very first person to ever be martyred for the cause of my message, for the cause of me. The very first person ever in history. And I believe Jesus was standing at the, at the right hand of the Father saying, well done. Well done, Stephen. Hold on. Hang in there. Play the man. Be strong. Be courageous. And he stood there with open arms when Stephen passed away. Hmm. The reason they took stones to kill Stephen was because of that moment right there. Up to this point, yes, what, the, what he had been telling them, they perceived as blasphemy. But when he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, they perceived this for him saying, the Messiah is equal to God. And to them, that was the ultimate blasphemy. And according to Mosaic law, if you're going to get rid of a blasphemer, then the only way to do it, according to Mosaic law, was to stone them. And that's why they drug him out of the city walls and they stoned him to death. And they yelled at the top of their voices, verse 57. They covered their ears and together they rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, Stephen lived his life full of grace and power. And he showed the other believers how to live. But now he was going to show them how to die. See, he was full of power in his life, in his message, in what he did. But he's also full of grace. And we see this in his death. So the sixth point, even when they continued to attack, he forgave. He forgave. Mm. He left an example, as Jesus did, to forgive those who harmed him. Look at verses 59 and 60. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Yeah. These are two of the same statements Jesus made from the cross. Lord, receive my spirit. Father, receive my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is quoting what Jesus said from the cross. And some people wonder, was, was Stephen even around when Jesus was? Well, yes, this, this took place in 36 to 38 A.D., just three to five years after Christ had been crucified. Stephen's a young man. He's about 27 to 32 years old at this point. But yes, he would have been around and very possibly could have even witnessed what was happening on the cross. So this is only possible to be able to have this kind of spirit in order to have this kind of grace in the midst of being killed by the mob. It's only power, it's only possible through a life lived full of grace and power. So it begs the question, does this example reflect your life? Oh, now I've gone to the eraser. Does this example reflect your life? What about you? Are you like Stephen? Do you have a good reputation? 
D.L. Moody once said, out of 100 people, one may read the Bible, but the other 99 are reading you. What's your reputation like? Are you living in the Spirit? And number three, do you face opposition with grace? Remember this, folks. Lost people are going to act like lost people. So we must show them the grace that Jesus should show them, right? We have to love them relentlessly while continually pointing them to the truth of the gospel. And as we will discover, this one outstanding, one astounding, one amazing, one incredible moment in the early church, the beginning of the church, the church in Jerusalem, it was witnessed and encouraged by this young Pharisee who's overseeing the whole process, and his name is Saul of Tarsus, and he's nodding his approval of Stephen's death. Little did he know that the spread of the gospel that he was trying to stop would be the very thing that would eventually <laughs> be what he gives his own life for when he becomes the Paul, the apostle, in chapter 9. It has been said, first by Tertullian and now by millions of others, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How true this is. God used this moment as a catalyst to spread the message of Christ into the rest of the world until it would eventually become the church as we know it today. Because at this moment, a great persecution began to, began to spread. And so the Christians now are forced to flee into where? Judea and Samaria <laughs> and the uttermost parts of the world. Isn't it amazing how God used the death of one of his own to do the exact work that he promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the spread of the gospel would go. And he continues to raise up Stephens in every generation to be the voice of truth. The question is this, will you be one of those voices? Folks, the gospel is going to last forever. The Lord Jesus will reign forever. And you are part of a church and witnesses of the truth that will stand forever. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will prevail against his church, even the powers of hell itself. So here's the message for us, church. Rise up. Wise up. Fill up with the power of the Spirit of God and stand up. And when you do, Jesus will stand for you. So live your life full of grace and power. The absolute worst they can do, folks, is kill you. But in the words of that young Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul the Apostle, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The worst they can do is kill you. But for you as a believer, it just gets better. Read by your heads with me, please. As the band comes out, I just wanna, I just wanna remind you this morning that the call of Christ is, is not an easy one, it's a serious one. And if we're gonna live our lives for him, then let's do it fully. Let's be people full of power and grace. Let's be people full of his spirit and wisdom. Let's be people full of mercy and love. And let's be people who in this community are voices for the truth. Oh God, help us today to see that you truly are all that we need. Help us today to be reminded that in the midst of a crazy world 
full Lord of a mob type mindset where anything is offensive unless it's of course what they believe where anything goes morally or anything else unless of course it's from Judeo-Christian ethics Lord our, our prayer in our frustration of watching how our world is just going downhill so quickly is that you would rise up voices like Stephen in this congregation from this platform to reach this world for you. Oh God, we pray for one more great revival before you come back to get us. May it begin here. May it begin in each one of our hearts. And may we see it spread throughout Lynchburg, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Use us, God, like you've never used us before. Break us where we need to be broken. Fill us, God, with your power and your grace. Can we stand together and let's just sing a verse and a chorus of this song as we go? Christ is my reward. Sing it with us. Christ is my reward in all of my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that can ever sing this as a fight song as we go today a little song says I have decided to follow Jesus it's from an old hymn I want to hear you sing it out everybody come on I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back turning back. Live your life for Him, full of power and grace this week. And who knows what kind of lives will be changed in your midst? Who knows what kind of lives you're going to bless? Who knows who you may tick off? (laughs) It's going to happen. It just does. It's the nature of the gospel. But in the midst of it all, do it with love and with grace and with mercy. God bless you guys. Have a great week, everybody.
Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.